David Brooks is a successful man. He's a leading columnist, a best-selling author. He's had books in the top ten, numerous books of the New York Times bestseller list. He's climbed the mountain of career and success. And yet he writes this book called The Second Mountain. He's climbed the first mountain, but he writes a book about the second mountain. And it's a really a story about his gradual climb towards faith. And he writes in this book, The Second Mountain, he says this. He says, my first mountain was an insanely lucky one. I achieved far more professional success than I ever expected to. But that climb turned me into a certain type of person, aloof, invulnerable, and uncommunicative, at least when it came to my private life. I sidestepped the responsibilities of relationship. In the book, he chronicles his success in one sense, this first mountain, but at the same time, he realised that this success that he had achieved had very little meaning for him in his life. He says this, he says, I prioritise time over people, productivity over relationship. And what he observes is that he was just following the script of a modern secular world, a world where rampant individualism and ego obsession becomes a prisoner for us as people. David Brooks discovered that there was another mountain, that there was another mountain of meaning beyond our own selves, beyond our own lives, beyond our career, beyond our achievements. And here in this passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 17, we have a meaning-saturated vision of how Jesus changes a person. What we have is the outcome of the gospel, not just in individual lives, but in the life of our community. Here we have a richness of relationship with one another. And there are two things really that I want us to note uh, in, in a big kind of picture of these verses, verses 5 to 17. Firstly, they have a corporate nature. There's a community emphasis within these verses. This is not merely a list of self-improvement to tick off while we each bear responsibility. These practices that are described here are to be lived not by ourselves, they're to be lived and only can be lived in the context of a community of faith. And the second thing to notice in verses 5 to 17, kind of big picture kind of observation, is that there is a replacement concept at work here. What we see in these verses is a command and a call from the Apostle Paul as he writes to this church and he wants them to leave behind their life of sin and to live a new life to Christ. But in doing this and in saying no to sin, Paul is encouraging these Christians to say yes to God. It's not merely saying no to sin, 
It's saying no to sin and saying yes to God. What Paul gives us, if you've got that passage open up into open up there in Colossians chapter 3, what Paul gives us in verses 5 to 11 is what scholars refer to as a vice list. And then in verses 12 to 17, there's a virtue list. And Paul is encouraging these Christians to put off the vices uh, which are inconsistent with the new identity that they have in Christ and to put on these virtues which are consistent with their new identity. You might remember Jesus encountered Zacchaeus, this tax collector, this man who had in his heart greed. Money was his obsession at the cost of relationships. And as Jesus transformed his life, he didn't merely get rid of the greed in his life. Zacchaeus put on generosity. And so it's not simply what we discard, it's also what we practice. And those two things go together. There's a replacement concept. So there's a corporate nature to what Paul is saying. This is only worked out in the context of a community, this new life. And secondly, there's this replacement context. You'll see an outline there where we're going this morning. It'll be a, a really a quick movement through these verses. These verses are rich. There's so much to say, but we'll move quickly through verses 5 to 17. You'll see that firstly we're going to see the old life that is to be killed in verses 5 to 11. Secondly, we're going to look at the character of Christ that we are to display in verses 12 to 14. Thirdly, the peace of Christ that's to rule us. And fourthly and finally, the word of Christ that will transform us. Last week, we saw that we share in Christ's victory. That in sharing Christ's victory, we have a new priority, a new security, a new destiny. We've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection And now Paul is going to tease out for us, what does that mean? What does that look like for our lives? So firstly, there is an old life to kill. In this next section, we see that Paul says there in verse 5 that we are to do what? We are to put to death this old life, this old way of being. And Paul's going to drill down into really what humanity has been struggling with since Adam. What has humanity been struggling with since Adam? Well, we as humans want to feel, we want to have, and we want to be. Uh, Modern kind of way of thinking about that, if you like, is we see it in our world. We see hedonism, we see materialism, and we see narcissism. You see hedonism in our passage there in verse 5. You see materialism there in verse 5 where we're not to covet. And you see narcissism, I think, in one sense, with the call not to be angry and the pride that's often associated with anger. For the Christian, Paul is giving us a confidence. He's reminding us. He's helping us to see that there is another way of living. Sometimes we as Christians, we we get bogged down in our failure and in our weakness and in our mistakes. But Paul is reminding us here this morning that we have a power at work in us. We don't have to live a defeated 
Christian life. Why? Well, we saw it last week. Because you have already been raised with Christ. You will one day be raised in body, but there is a sense now that you have already been raised. You have a new life in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. And when God works in a person, he changes them. He changes them. If indeed we are full with the fullness of Christ, if we are seeking things above, then verse 5, we are going to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. And you notice that language there, that that language to put to death is quite a vicious kind of language. Here, sin isn't to be managed. Here, sin is to be killed. It's a radical problem, and so it needs a radical response. As a kid, um, I used to walk through shops, and often they'd have arcade games. And I don't know if uh, this was you as a kid, but you didn't have any money to play these arcade games. And so what, what you'd do is you just go up to the screen, and basically on the screen it would just say, Game Over. And what you would do is you pretend, you pretend that you were playing the game, even though it didn't really work. You'd use the joysticks, you'd click the buttons, but nothing would happen because it was just game over. Paul is reminding us here this morning that we can goof around, but sin is no longer in control of us. It is game over. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that we are dead to sin but alive in Christ. And that means that God is at work in us in various aspects of our lives. Paul takes some aspects there um, in verse 5. Firstly, we see sexual sin. He He says, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust and evil desire. Here we have encouragement. Here, in fact, we have confidence as Christians that as we engage in our world, as temptation comes before us, we can remind ourselves that we don't muck around with sin, that it's game over, that in fact, more correctly, we died to that and our life is now with Christ. Here Paul is actually speaking quite radically in the ancient context. Because in an ancient context, sex was an appetite that really was just gratified and not controlled. But Paul is bringing this word to the church and he's bringing it not to... um, He's not talking about those outside the church, he's talking to Christians. And it was radical back then as it is to us now. Where to put to death sexual immorality. Impurity is a word connected there, a more general word, an evil desire or sometimes translated as passion. They're connected ideas. You have basically a quartet of sensuality that Paul is saying it needs to be executed. John Owen, the Puritan minister, reminds us that the way we... Uh, operate in life is there's only two alternatives. Either we're killing sin 
by God's work in us through the Holy Spirit, or it's killing us. Secondly, we see that Paul looks at covetedness, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry there in verse 5. This word greed, or sometimes covetedness, is the desire for more. Uh, This may be in the context of those earlier words there in verse 5, someone else's wife, as in the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, where it talks about covetedness, it's in relation to another man's wife. But greed is quite different to sexual sin, isn't it? Greed, in many ways, is a far more acceptable kind of sin. It's hard to know when you struggle with greed. When you lie, you know it. When you commit adultery, you know it. But when you're greedy, well, it's sneaky. Here, Paul calls greed, or this insatiable desire for more and more and more, he calls it idolatry. Because it's, it's idolatry because it's the desire for something to give us what only Christ can give us. And as much as greed might be acceptable in our society, well, in God's eyes, it's serious. You see there that in, um, later on that they provoke God's wrath. Thirdly, you see there in verse 8 that Paul is speaking about a relational kind of sin. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. These are the kind of sins that disrupt the unity of the body. Paul has in mind those antisocial behaviours, things that create fracture, a boiling over of anger, Malice, a plotting of doing evil, slander, the way you speak about someone else in an undermining, negative and accusatory way. But what Paul is saying here is that we must put to death these kinds of behaviours, these kind of behaviours that wreak, wreak havoc on the unity and the togetherness of Christ's body. And God does change people. God does turn anger into kindness in our lives, slander to encouragement. And we're not to lie. We're to be people, verse 9, of truth. We're to be straight. We don't have to make up a story. When someone invites us out and we can't make it, we don't need to make up a story about why we can't be there. We can just say, I can't make it. Paul reminds us here of what we're to put to death. Sexual immorality, greed, these relational sins of slander and anger. Because if under God these sins are put to death, there is tremendous benefit there in verses 9 to 10. There is a new self that is at work. We're pursuing a different way of life. A new person has come to live within us by God's spirit. And as we put off these sins, there's a tremendous benefit. There's a unity with with diversity. You see there in verse 11, when these sins are put put aside, it promotes the growth of a body. Here there is no Greek, verse 11, or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, 
circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a harmony and a unity, a racial unity, Jew and Greek, an ethnic unity, circumcised and uncircumcised, a cultural unity in terms of Greek-speaking or non-Greek-speaking, a social unity, slave or free. See, what could bring such a mixture of people together? What could bring them together? Only Christ. And here, as Christ brings a people together, it's not as if people lose their race, their ethnicity, their heritage, where they've come from. These things aren't lost when Christ brings a people together. But being in Christ takes precedence. In our world, there is a form of togetherness that's based on really those things. People have bonds, bonds based on race, based on ethnicity, based on culture, based on social strata. But that's not what unites us as a church. What unites us is Christ. And that means that there's not a, a, a sameness about us. There's a unity. There's a oneness, but there's not a uniformity. Because when there's unity, when those sins are put aside and when God's people are brought together, Christ is magnified. Filth is done away with. Fury is forgotten. Fragmentation is gone. And Christ is is magnified. That's a picture that Paul paints for us. Secondly, the character of Christ to be displayed. We see that in verses 12 to 17. We're to put to death these sins. We're to take off this old way of life. But we're not naked. We are clothed now with Christ. And if you look at that list of virtues there in verses 12 to 14... Well, they look a lot like the Lord Jesus. They're a description of a holy person. Now, often when we think of holiness, we think of a religious person who is holier than thou. But in Paul's mind, when he thinks of a holy person, he thinks of the Lord Jesus. Our identity in Christ means that we are to grow more and more like Jesus. And so we are to put off sin and we are to put on these traits there in verse 12. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Paul there in verse 12 is reminding them of the reality of their relationship with God. They're chosen, loved and holy. They're chosen so they're secure in their relationship with God. They haven't, these, um, those that Paul writes to, they haven't chosen God. God has chosen them. And so their relationship is secure. And their relationship is one of love, loved with an everlasting love. And they are holy now. This is a positional holiness. They've been declared righteous in God's sight. And because they are chosen, loved and holy, they are to live like that. They are to put on compassion. 
Compassion means concern for someone, care and concern, particularly for someone in difficult circumstances. It has this deep emotive element. You can't have compassion outside of emotion. There's no such thing as cold compassion. It's a deep bodily sense of love and care for another person. Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they were sheep without a shepherd. Secondly, there's kindness. Kindness that's spoken about here is a, is a, is a disposition, a, a way of seeing others. Um, many people in our world, and really because of our world, have a, have a deep kind of cynicism as they see others, always expecting the worst. But here Paul is speaking about a, a sweetness of disposition, a graciousness, uh, even a gentleness. In Romans 11 verse 22, kindness is contrast with severity. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 22, it's a fruit of the spirit. So there's compassion, there's kindness, and there's humility and meekness there in verse 12. There's similar ideas, but hum- humility and meekness were not thought of as virtues in the first century context. Humility, as one writer puts it, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And how do we do that? By seeing the Lord Jesus more and more, by seeing and experiencing his compassion, his kindness. And finally, we see there in verse 12 that we are to be patient There's a self-restraint here that Paul is speaking of, a forbearing in the face of frustration, a willingness to endure even wrongs because God is patient and we are the recipients of his patience. Paul also speaks about being forgiven there in verse 13. We're to bear with one another and we're to forgive one another. And there in verse 13, the complaint may be legitimate. Uh, Forgiveness is not minimising how someone has acted towards you. Forgiveness realises that someone has hurt you. You can't, and what Paul is saying really here, is you can't enjoy Christ's forgiveness without expressing forgiveness to others. We even prayed it in the Lord's Prayer, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Now this doesn't mean that there ought not be any justice. Um, There ought to be justice. But there can also be, and there needs to be for the Christian, forgiveness. The language is strong here. It's not okay to to bear a grudge. It's not okay to slander, gossip and complain. We are to forgive one another. One writer, N.T. Wright, puts it this way. He says, Paul makes two points. First, it is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. Second, it is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. What is N.T. Wright saying there? He's saying, why make yourself above Christ? 
if Christ has forgiven you, draw from that forgiveness in order to forgive one another. And he draws it all together there in verse 14, where he encourages the Colossians to put on love, which binds them together in all perfect unity. There to act in a way in which Christ is displayed. They're to put off sin. They're to put on kindness and compassion. And as they put on kindness, compassion and gentleness, they display the Lord Jesus. And the church is united. Thirdly and fourthly, we'll deal with this very quickly as we end, the peace of Christ is to rule us. There in verse 15, there's a calmness of mind that Paul is speaking of here that's not troubled in adversity, a calmness of heart, a trust in Christ. And this trust of Christ, this peace is to rule us. The word there is the, the word for umpire. And so peace in our hearts and expressed in our lives is to be our goal in dealing with one another. And it's a foretaste of the peace that we will experience when Christ returns. We have peace, and so let's maintain it. How do we maintain it? How do we keep going in this? Well, Paul answers that in verses 16 and 17, where the word of Christ transforms us. We're to so build our lives on Christ and his word that his message there in verse 16 is to is to find home in us. Don't let the word of God and the word of the gospel be an occasional visitor in your heart. It won't be enough. You won't be able to put to death sin. You won't be able to display Christ in your life if the word of God is just an occasional visitor. The word of God needs to take up residency in our hearts. We need to let the word of God sign a lease within us so that we can build one another up, so that we can honour Jesus in everything that we do. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're, We're aware of him and his transforming work in us to put to death sin and to live for him and for his people. Amen. We're going to sing.